Hello, hello, hello. So really, really excited for you guys to listen to today's amazing episode. I have been following Danny on social media for quite a long time and the no BS, the honest approach that Danny has is is amazing. And Danny is so open and honest in this approach and Danny has amazing kind of outlook on coaching and he has an amazing outlook and explains things very, very differently than someone else has and he's we talk about kind of the biggest mistakes he's actually made with his own training and nutrition we also talk about how to make the most out of your newbie gains and what newbie gains are we talk about where to actually start if you're trying to start somewhere whether it was is it better to start off with training is it better to start off with your nutrition and what he believes on that side of things we also talk about kind of like how we've both changed our beliefs on i don't have enough time that side of things and how to approach it with clients and how to approach it with yourself we also talk about a really really important message and i think this is i haven't heard it explained this way before and it's the power of carbs and potentially why that definition of carbohydrates is wrong and what people clarify and classify as a carbohydrate and it's really really interesting that side of things we talk about intuitive eating versus informative eating and i know i've had on the amazing eilish reish who is the co-author of the amazing book intuitive eating and danny kind of dissects that, that little bit more and gives his own interpretation of intuitive eating and what a lot of people are doing is informed eating because they potentially come from a calorie tracking background and then danny talks also about food guilt is it self-taught is kind of be unlearned and he's very careful how he kind of talks about that and then we talk about the fastest way to see results and i think a lot of this is going to hit home for an awful lot of people where they potentially are i know the people who listen to this podcast are people who are potentially new to training I know there's coaches who listen to this, I know there's nutritionists who listen to this, I know there's dietitians who listen to this. So I'm really excited for you guys to actually to kind of listen to this, dissect it and kind of pick out which parts are relevant to you. I'll be surprised if not an awful lot of it is hits home. And then one of the last topics we talk about is 90% of you have no business of training five, six days a week. In reality, probably less is do, is probably more for your body. So it's, it's really, really interesting. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode with Danny Matranga. Danny, how are we, sir? I'm doing really well, man. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Danny, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I've been kind of following you for quite a long time now, and I've kind of just, it's kind of like watching in a distance, kind of trying to get you on. So, and then I reached out. So I was delighted that you came on. So thank you for doing that. Absolutely, man. I, I try to do these as, as much as I can. It's still, I'm still at a phase in my career with this, where I think anybody who wants to have me on their podcast or anybody who follows me at all, like it's, I'm still coming to terms with the significance of that and how cool that is. So I, I try not to say no. If I ever do, it's only because of my schedule and you know how hard it was for us to get this scheduled, but I'm honored to be here, man. And thanks for following along. And um, it's always special to be recognized like that. So thank you so much. And I know you are tied for time with the the exciting next step for yourself. So I appreciate the appreciate. So if anyone who isn't aware of what you do and what you're about, Danny, can you give us a quick little pitch in relation to who Danny Matranga is? Yeah. Um, so I think the simplest way to communicate what it is that I do and who I am is I, I am a personal trainer slash fitness coach who has found a way to try to communicate what has worked well for me and my clients uh, using so social media and online coaching as well. So um, 
I am your general run-of-the-mill certified personal trainer. I live in the United States. I've been doing this for almost a decade. It'll be 10 years in September. I started doing this when I was 18 because it was the most uh, schedule flexible way to make money while paying for my undergrad uh, degree in kinesiology. And when I got to the end of my graduate coursework, I realized like, I think that entrepreneurship and pursuing personal training as a career would be a really, really good thing for me to do. So I struck it off on my own independently after working at a big box gym for four years. I started making content and my online brand and presence grew slowly and organically enough that people like yourself somehow found me, liked what I had to say, and I get to have conversations like this. Um, but yeah, that's kind, that's kind of my elevator pitch. I, I am a personal trainer who likes to communicate what works for me and my clients using this crazy vehicle that is the internet. I think there's a little bit more to it, but there's a lot of more. There's like Danny would have a fairly no kind of like it's a fairly sensical, evidence based kind of fairly no BS approach at the same time, which I think I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, I would say that that more generally, um, I, I'm I'm a, I would say that I, I lean into the research, I lean into the science, the evidence. I'm I'm very hungry to learn about those things as well. So there's definitely a a flair of the evidence-based slash science communication element to what it is that I communicate. But at the core of what I do, um, I'm trying to help the largest majority of people be more active, feel better, move better, and learn from various different principles and disciplines within physical culture that I've fortunately been able to experiment and explore with and learn from other people. And from when you've started, like nearly a decade ago, what's the biggest shift that you've seen? And if you were to go back again and relive that 10 years ago, what would you change? Oh, man. So there's a lot. And I, I communicate this to clients all the time. I've made a number of mistakes in my training career, both as an athlete and as a professional. I would say the most destructive and let's call it uh negative behavior I had that I had to kind of unpack and rework was at the very beginning of my personal lifting career. When I first started lifting, I was heavily influenced by bodybuilding magazines, by bodybuilders. I would collect supplements and display them because I thought that the branding and the logos and the packaging were just so cool. They were like my little treasures. And, you know, I, I was in denial about the rampant PED use amongst most physique competitors. So I was like, yeah, J I think Jay Cutler is natty. So, you know, if he's natty, man, I can, I can really do this thing. And I was very disillusioned and, and, you know, like many of us are when we first got started and I spent a lot of time on supplements, a lot of money on supplements. Sorry. I spent seven days a week training for two to three hours a day. I, I kind of flushed my newbie gains down the toilet by just not recovering at all and <laughs> playing multiple sports at the same time in high school. So like if I could go back, I would communicate to my younger self to do less and to lean into more into the space of personal trainers, strength and conditioning coaches, science communicators than influencers slash bodybuilders. Because I mean, this was actually like at the infancy of social media. Um, but yeah, I, I would very much like to go back in time and 
uh, course correct my 18, 19 year old self, 16, 17, 18, 19 year old self away from overtraining, under recovering, over relying on supplements and, and kind of deitizing the world that is um, influencer anecdotal knowledge over perhaps uh, the science that's readily available now that that's much easier to consume because I've expanded my intelligence a little bit just through natural maturation, I'd say. You mentioned the term uh, newbie gains. Can you explain yeah. what newbie gains is to John and Mary down the road and why you need to take advantage of those and how to take advantage of those? Sure. Yeah. So a, a newbie gains is just a kind of silly way of describing the sensitivity most untrained individuals have to resistance training. You're very sensitive to that stimulus if you have not trained much. So assuming you're totally new, when you go to the gym, pretty much anything you do is going to promote muscle growth because your body is very receptive to novel stimuli like that. Over the course of a decade-long training career, that sensitivity drops precipitously and your gains slow down because you can only gain so much muscle naturally and the rate at which you gain it slows down the more trained you become. But that newbie gain phase is a small period in your training career. I would say it's usually the first year. Let's just throw out an arbitrary time. Let's say it's the first year where resistance training is going to be particularly effective at driving muscle growth. And you can probably get away with training two to four times a week and getting a really high return on that. And the, I would say if, if you want to maximize your newbie gains, training less, focusing on building strength, focusing on building movement quality, working on your form, working on your technique, while generally adding more weight to the bar, to the machine, to the cable stack, whatever implements you have, even if it's calisthenics, for God's sakes, being able to do more pull-ups, more push-ups, more lunges, uh, you will be very receptive in those initial months and years you begin training to seeing advanced and accelerated gains. The way that you can decelerate that progress would be to do too much, which is something that I did. And thankfully, you know, being in my late teens, I was able to, to probably have a hormonal environment that was, you know, a little bit better for recovery. But if you're, you know, not 18, 19, 20, and you're just getting started, you can start with three to four days a week, two to four days a week, even of, of resistance training and see phenomenal gains because your body will be very receptive to it so long as you recover. Yeah. And you mentioned a post a little while ago in relation to like 90% of you have no, no business of training six days a week. Sure. Why is it that some like that we go from such extremes from like either not training to like almost destroying ourselves at training? Like where is the actual the middle ground for us. It's probably the sweet point. Yeah. So I think that a big reason why people do that is, is well-intentioned. You know, they're, they're, we live in a society, especially in the Western world, where, you know, more work means more money, more money means more things, more things mean more happy. So we are all about more, 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 more must be better. So if I am looking to lose body fat and I've decided I, I've, I've made the initial difficult decision of choosing to incorporate exercise. Uh, why not do it every day? Why not do it seven days a week? Let's accelerate this. Let's do the most. Let's go twice a day. I mean, intuitively, it actually makes sense to think, okay, well, more must be better because in theory, when I was doing nothing, I wasn't going anywhere. 
So if I can train seven hours or seven days a week, two hours a day, I should crush it. But the, the thing that you run into and you see when you're like myself and you work with the general population, people have external stressors that require recovery. So jobs, kids, relationships, finances, these are all things that incur stressors upon people outside of exercise, outside of watching their diet. So when you're working with somebody or you're putting a routine together for yourself, you need to understand that the allostatic load or the cumulative stress of that person's life, we're adding more stress to it with exercise. So we better add an amount that we can recover from. And for most people, I think that sweet spot is between three to five sessions a week. I do think there's 10 to maybe 15% of the population who's well-trained, who maybe they do a very good job on the lifestyle end of things with nutrition and sleep that absolutely can recover from six days a week of hard, deliberate training. But if you are training with a good form, good technique, somewhat close to failure with a decent amount of effort, and you have a job, you have kids, you have other responsibilities. I really believe that somewhere between three to five days, you will be able to really improve your health and physique and that adding more on, even though you know it makes sense intuitively, it might just be a little bit too much stress for you and you might end up getting and you might end up in the exact same place or even worse because your recovery is just trash um, than you would be if you did something more reasonable. I think a lot of people downplay or underplay the amount of stress that can be in their lives. So say if a client came to you and has a couple of kids, a really high profile job and hasn't got a whole lot of time for herself or himself, how or where would you advise that person to start? Would you advise them to kind of start off in the gym or would you advise them just to look at nutrition or would you advise them to start off with just walking to build a little bit of confidence? Where would you start? I think it's a great question because I think one issue that we see a lot is trying to do too much at once. Yeah. And then you're, you're, you know, you're incorporating three additional behavioral constraints or modifications. I'm going to go to the gym five days a week. I'm not going to eat any carbs or sugar and I'm going to stop drinking alcohol and I'm going to walk every day. You know, like, okay, those are all individually difficult habits to try to you know, really kind of ingrain and trying to do it all at once is setting yourself up for failure. So more generally, I would say, okay, let's start with what seems to me to be the most reasonable, which I've always felt is exercise. Because I would say in 10 years or so of doing this, the emotional component to food consumption takes a little bit longer to walk back and unpack. And there's also a lot of chemistry when it comes to nutrition. You have to understand physics to, to really understand energy balance. And so to truly teach somebody that and unpack that and, and overcome the emotional drive to eat or the social drive to eat can be really hard. And so, you know, people struggle with the nutrition side of things more, but most people tend to feel great after a workout. They feel accomplished after a workout. So I would say first, um, set up a gym routine or a movement routine that fits with their schedule and then build some confidence and momentum there. And usually when people start moving more and, and feeling better from moving more, that almost motivates them that much more to approach their nutrition. So of those two things, movement and nutrition, I do think it's easier to start with movement. Although, as you're well aware, nutrition will probably be the thing that ultimately drives weight management or weight reduction. So if I'm doing sessions with somebody in person, 
you know, congratulating them on showing up, on being on time, telling them every time they finish a workout, hey, you know what? You did more than you did the last time. And beginning a dialogue about nutrition, that tends to be a nice little segue. Uh, when it comes to working with clients online, I find that those those are usually individuals who have some kind of traction already in both departments, so it's different. But for the uninitiated, I would actually recommend starting with a movement practice that's reasonable. If you're totally deconditioned, there's nothing wrong with walking. If you don't have access to a gym, body weight workouts and band workouts can still be effective. Or if you can carve out three to four hours a week where you can drop into your local gym, you can do amazing things. Uh, you just have to pick something and get started. The next question that's going to come back is when people, I guess, the kind of the examples that we're using are kind of busy working professionals who are parents and all that kind of stuff. And the whole thing of not having enough time. And that's one of the sure. things that comes back. And it's, 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 it's easy to say it from someone who isn't necessarily a parent. Like yeah. it's very easy to say it. How, I used to do this all the time. I w- I'm very <laughs> guilty both of been this. There. Yeah, we've both been there. So how do you kind of reword that? Or how do you get th- through that kind of identity as one? And how sure. do you work through that barrier with the individual? Obviously it depends, but how do you work it through? It's a gr- It's a great point. You really do have to massage it and you have to work it through because it can become an identity. I'm somebody who doesn't work out and I'm somebody who doesn't have the time to work out. And one thing that I think people who are initiated and who do love to exercise and who do have that routine do, we have the luxury of being able to look at other people who say they don't have time and pinpoint all the little things that they do that they could be going to the gym instead. Well, you watch TV or oh, you go on social media. It's like, that is never helpful. You'd think it would be helpful, but it's usually not helpful to be like, well, you do this and you do that. And you're telling this person, you're communicating to them all the ways that they waste their time and undermining their confidence. So I, I find that accounting and like auditing how people spend their time can be a little bit invasive and sometimes counterproductive, even though for somebody like myself, who's maybe a little bit more logical and wired that way um, and, and does well with kind of the uh, less sugar-coated approach. I, I think that that can work, but what tends to work best for the most people is just saying, hey, okay, let's sit down and let's carve out some time understanding that even one hour a week is going to be really helpful. And we don't need to do five days, six days, seven days. If we can find one, two, hopefully three hours on your calendar this week for a workout, I think we can really commit to that and do some damage. But let's see where we can find a couple pockets of time for you to be active because it does not have to be a lot. We can start very small. And then people seem, okay, well, if we can, we can start small, all of a sudden there's a little more free time. Well, I have an hour here. Okay, great. Well, oh, and maybe an hour here. Awesome. Okay, let's start with that. And you start small and you go slow to eventually go fast. But I truly believe that sitting down with somebody or, or, or asking them, you know, okay, where can we put this? Where can we carve out some time? And the other, the other, like, if you wanted a hack for it that I think like works amazingly well for busy professionals is you know that they're probably going to have at least one day a week that's off, assuming they have a supervisor, a boss, or they have a traditional job. If they're an entrepreneur, it's not uncommon for people to work seven days a week. But assuming they have like weekends off, say, okay, cool. There's two workouts right there, one on Saturday and one on Sunday. Your job then is Monday through Friday in that five days, I need you to find me two hours for a workout. Can you find me two hours Monday through Friday? And they'll almost always say, 
Oh yeah, I can find you two hours. You know, you can you can be like, okay, on the days you don't work, we're gonna definitely train there. And then on the days you do work, I only need you to be two out of five. So I only need you to find, you know, you only need to hit 40% of the time. That just seems like so wildly reasonable to people that all of a sudden they're way more receptive to finding those times as opposed to somebody who's like, no, you have the time. You're just lazy. You don't want it bad enough. You got to get up earlier. You got to stay up later. I know I don't have kids and I know that I don't have the responsibilities that you have, but a lot of motivational videos. And I know that you have the time. It's like, you got to, you got to reason with people and you have to be respectful of people, especially if they've hired you or they've consulted you. Um, you know, it's, it's always, I think, better practice to be collaborative than it is to be like extremely commanding and, and demanding of people. So giving them a little autonomy and working with them to find the times I find works best, even when people are super busy. When or where did you change your approach on that from the whole thing of like, you haven't got enough time, you don't want it enough? Because I think every coach goes through that of like, you just don't want it hard enough. Sure, sure. And all the, I, I didn't ever like pivot away from believing that that's fundamentally true because it is like it's, it's, it is, it is the truth. Like there is 168 hours in a week for every single human being, period, end of story. And you could make a very logical argument that if you cannot allocate a few hours a week for your health, you're going to die early. And that's a damn shame. And it's the truth. <laughs> but what I think really made it click for me was when I realized like, you can communicate the same thing to somebody with a little bit more, uh, let's call it a little bit softer, a little bit more kind, and it will drive better outcomes. And so what really made it click for me was seeing how ineffective that messaging was and realizing like, well, this is very true. It's very analytical. Why is this not clicking for people? And I think it's because people aren't gaining weight and people aren't not exercising because of logic and because of analytics. It's very clear that the logical and analytically best decision would be to stay active and eat in a nutritious way across the lifespan. But the reason people struggle is because of emotions. And so delivering something in a way that's more emotionally palatable, it's more considerate, it's more kind, um, that all of a sudden seemed to make more people encouraged to want to work out with me. And then when I started to tailor how I communicated philosophies about fitness or training on social media that way, and my stuff started spreading faster and people started sharing it more, I started going, huh, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So let's not say it like an asshole because there's everybody has enough of those in their life. And a lot of times I think people just need somebody who believes in them and who encourages them and who's positive. So delivering the same message in a more encouraging, positive and pragmatic way, instead of like a judgmental, logical, analytical way, really helped accelerate the speed at which my content got out there. So I realized like, damn, this, this obviously resonates better because it works in person and it works in the digital space. I think people just want to be respected and they want to feel like they're not being shit on. Yeah, there's enough assholes in the world. We don't need to be the the, the coach doesn't need to be the other one. Um, you mentioned that people are kind of led by emotions. And I think that's something to really, really dig into because I think the first thing you said or what we led into earlier on was if someone start trying to start out, it would be like the food and nutrition seems to be a little bit more emotionally led when yeah. kind of like the lower hanging fruit, pardon the pun, is in kind of like the exercise side of things. Can you elaborate sure. on what you mean by kind of like the people are a little bit more emotionally led with the kind of the nutrition side of things? 
Yeah. So like when people deal with a lot of stress, um, I think that food is a very accessible coping tool for stress more so than exercise. They're both effective at helping manage stress, right? But you can't stop and grab a workout in two minutes the way you can stop and grab like a soda or a candy bar. And so I do think in a hyper chaotic world where people are trying to manage a lot of emotional stressors and we're constantly surrounded by hyper palatable, very pleasurable foods, people can get into a cycle where they manage their emotional distress with hyper palatable foods that are high in calories and easy to overconsume. And if you just try to make the pitch of, hey, it's simple, just eat less calories than your maintenance and you'll lose weight, it really undermines the unconscious and subconscious behaviors people have around food. A lot of people eat stuff they know they shouldn't eat based on their goals, based on the unhappiness maybe they have about their physique. And it's because they're having a hard time regulating the emotional stressors in their life because with things outside of food, because food works great for that temporarily. Exercise works great. Therapy works great. But exercise and therapy are more active ways to manage stress. Food is very passive. You can grab it, eat something tasty, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, I feel a little better. Well, that becomes very, very challenging to unpack and unwind overnight. You can't just tell somebody, oh, you stress eat, just stop. It's always there. It's always accessible. And people don't have complete control of their environment either. So sometimes they go to work and their work is very stressful and those foods are at their work. And so one of the things that I think makes starting to build or create traction around nutrition so hard is you need to have some control of your environment, some control over your emotions. And those two things are really hard to do 24-7. Whereas exercise, you can carve out an hour, you can go and do it, and you have completed that task for the day. But nutrition is really like an around-the-clock discipline that you need to have, I think, a little bit of confidence and a little bit of belief in yourself. Like, hey, I, I got this. Like, I can go to work. I can work that double shift in the ER and I can walk into the break room and I'm not going to touch those donuts. I'm not going to do it. And I, I do believe that because we are living in a very fast-paced, chaotic world where people are stressed, they struggle with their mental health, their anxiety, depression, um, and food is a very accessible an effective cool at a tool at coping with those things that that's part of why it's a little bit harder for people to get that right. I, th I think that answers the question as to why I think food is so tricky. It, it really has a lot to do with natural challenges people face regulating their emotions in a really chaotic world. And I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging that, that it's a little bit more challenging. In fact, I think that might be a really effective way at helping people start to face it and, and build some traction and habits around it, knowing that this is allowed to be hard. Uh, struggling with my nutrition makes sense because the environment and the stressors of my life are not stacked against me, but they're stacked in a way that this is going to require being thoughtful. This is not going to be an overnight fix. Like going keto for two weeks is probably not going to fix this problem. I, I've got to learn how to navigate food, how to navigate my stress, in a way that's mindful, actionable, and that doesn't cause you know huge ups and downs and fluctuations in my weight because I'm crash dieting or I'm fad dieting or I'm binging. It's really a pursuit 
in learning how to navigate the greater food slash stress environment? It's a super answer because I think emotions and emotional regulation, obviously, so for, for many people, it actually hasn't been taught to them through parents or grandparents or whatever it is, through people who have brought them up. They haven't been shown how to actually deal with their emotions and then things will implode if they haven't been shown. And then food has become a coping mechanism taken away from them, given to them as reward, punishment, whatever. Maybe there's massive, massive factors. And, and I think one, like one of the big foods that kind of people can go for, and I think you've alluded to it earlier, is kind of the likes of sugar and carbs. And one of the amazing posts that you put out was the power of carbs. Now, carbs is one of those yeah. foods. One of the one of the carbs is one of those foods that still unfortunately um gets a lot of crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so can you talk about how important the how carbs are so important to us and totally, totally. So like I, I look at carbohydrates, um I think the way that most evidence-based fitness professionals would look at carbohydrates, we look at them as brain fuel muscle fuel, you know, we store them in our muscle tissue as glycogen. Um, they can be very effective at driving performance outcomes mentally and physically. They're also quite literally the most like accessible, um, nutritious foods that we have. So like fruits are great sources of carbohydrates. Whole grains are great sources of carbohydrates. Vegetables, those super nutritious things that not everybody likes to eat, those would fall into the classification of carbohydrates, right? And those aren't necessarily the types of carbohydrates that people want to consume. They prefer to consume the more refined, hyper palatable things like cookies and cakes and biscuits and crackers and chips that are carbohydrates refined usually with sugars or fats that make them more palatable with texture profiles that are chewy or crunchy that make them more you know tasty and easy to overconsume and so people see that that classification of foods though that category that's carbs those are carbs and when i don't eat carbs i lose weight and that is very intuitive because those foods are extremely high in calories and they're extremely easy to overconsume. And if you eliminate them from your diet, the way most people eat, they will lose weight. But people neglect to understand the greater classification of carbohydrates includes this wide spectrum of fruits, vegetables, whole grains to more refined grains and refined starches that are easier to overconsume and have less fiber. And so what I tell people is everything on this continuum is probably okay. There's really nothing on this continuum that's going to hurt you, but you want to spend the majority of your time or the majority of your consumption towards that element or side of the continuum that has the fiber, that has the micronutrients, that isn't so easy to overconsume. because then you can have your carbs. You're not putting yourself in a situation where you're going to sit down and like a lot of people will overconsume those hyper palatable carbs. So they'll, they'll trigger a binge for some people. They even call them trigger foods and say, Hey, you can have those. Just don't make, you know, don't like if you had um, like a stack of chips, push like poker chips, push most of your chips onto that more nutritious, minimally processed, grain rich, fiber rich, micronutrient rich, polyphenol rich side, and then push a few chips over towards the fun side. If you can look at carbs, that way and say, I, I can have these. I just shouldn't have more of these than the other stuff. All of a sudden now 
your caloric intake is going to drop precipitously. You're going to feel full, satiated, nourished because of all the fiber. I mean, for Christ's sake, fiber is so damn important. It's probably the second most important thing for staying full outside of like eating enough protein. So when people try to lose weight and cut carbs, they almost always cut their fiber down and they're fucking hungry all the time. And so carbohydrates, they include fiber and nutrition in a way that You've got to make sure when you're talking and communicating to people about carbs, you communicate the good stuff. And so usually with that post, what I'm trying to communicate is like, okay, look, yes, cookies, cakes, chips, biscuits, crackers, the shit that people can't stop eating and they overconsume, those are carbs. But the carbohydrate molecule is really beneficial for you. And you can get that from those foods or you can get it from other foods that are super nutritious that you can eat a lot more of. And so my thing is like, instead of crapping on carbs, so people feel like they have to stay away from them and just end up in this constant cycle of avoiding all carbs, feeling like crap. I try to say, Hey, look, these are all the amazing things that carbohydrates can do. And here's the best, most nutritious places just to get them. So you also get some fiber and some vitamins. Um, and that's really awesome because then you feel full and you don't have to eat so much of the junk. You're not as inclined to eat so much of the junk instead of just being like lazy about it and being, I'll stay away from all carbs. Cause that, that tends to almost always result in a back like rebound effect. I love the way you've kind of, you've, you've kind of brought that through kind of like the issue is generally people's definition of what a carb is. And they're, they're kind of like their interpretation of what a carb is. And it's those highly palatable foods, those crisps, the, the ice cream, whatever it may be. And they're generally the ones that get, that get cut out. It's like, well, I can't have this. Well, no, no, you can. You just don't need as much as you're potentially having it. The ones that are generally sticking to diets, the gen- the, like the people that we're, we're looking at or people are seeing up on Instagram are the ones that are having those foods each day. They're not cutting them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they may not be natural either. And Danny used the words natty earlier. If someone doesn't understand what natty means, it means not natural or it means natural. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that it's an amazing definition. I think it's huge as well. Like if you, if you don't have carbs in your life, you're going to be lethargic. You may not, may, may, you're going to have issues with your menstrual cycle as well. You're not getting enough energy into it. You want to have energy for your training. I would always ask my clients the same question of, are you, are you, do your kids or your partner think you're a nicer person with carbs and chocolate in your life? And mm-hmm. I haven't had an answer of now yet. <laughs> and the other thing too, man, it's like you if you choose to remove them entirely, you will be also removing some very nutritious, very accessible, very convenient foods like fruits, like vegetables, like whole grains, like nuts, like seeds, which on their own contain other macros, sure. But if you're like, literally, I don't allow myself to eat carbs. Oh my gosh, is it hard to hit on all of those nutritional targets that are probably going to be aligned with your long-term health. So if you're saying like, okay, in the short term, I'll do whatever it takes to lose weight. I'm going to eliminate all carbs because that works for me. You're going to eliminate a shit ton of micronutrition and a ton of fiber. And in the long term, that habit might not actually be very beneficial for your health, longevity, how you feel. It might only be beneficial in the short term for helping you lose weight. And those like those trade-offs, people make those trade-offs all the time. And I do think that promoting the benefit of carbohydrate helps people make more sensible, reasonable trade-offs where they go, okay, I'm not going to cut them out altogether. They've obviously got some utility, but where can I look to reduce them? 
And the logical place to reduce them would be the highest calorie, lowest return forms of carbs, which tend to be those that are most refined. And so instead you say, hey, have less of that stuff. And then when you do have it, savor it, enjoy it, eat it slow, make the most of it. You can definitely still have them, right? Those carbs are going to fuel your workout the same as the carbs from an orange, theoretically, right? It's all going to get broken down to glucose. The rate at which it gets broken down is going to be influenced by fiber, but people don't need to know that, you know? Like, or they, they don't care to know that most people don't care to know that you say, Hey, you know, you're going to have that slice of pie, have one slice and have it after your leg day. You're going to feel great. You know, it's, it's not going to hurt you. It's also, it's always important to, to remind people like, cause there's a flip side to this where they start to feel extremely guilty when they indulge in those uh, carbohydrates that exist on that side of the spectrum where the calories are higher and the nutritional return is lower. And you don't want to attach any morality to that. You want to make sure that people know if they do enjoy that stuff, it's not like in any way, shape or form indicative of them being any less invested in their health and fitness. And sometimes like those are the biggest kudos I give clients. They're like, yeah, I went to a birthday party and I had like a small plate and I did have a little piece of cake and I go a little piece. Why'd you have a little piece? And they go, well, I knew I wanted to have some of it, but I didn't, I didn't want to go back for seconds and I didn't want to have like a huge piece. So I just cut myself a little piece and I go, that's amazing. That's a phenomenal display of moderation. That's like a better PR than anything we've hit in the gym this week. Like way to go, way to take control of, of, of your behavior in an environment that you don't have control of and show some discipline. Like that's awesome. And that's a great way to have a piece of cake. And so all of a sudden you can start to build people's confidence and, and autonomy through celebrating the right behaviors around what many people might call the quote unquote bad foods. Whereas so many trainers and fitness professionals are going to be like, oh, you had cake, instant fail. I told you not to do that. And it's like, well, there's no fucking way in hell they're not going to do that because I do that shit too. And that's the other thing. Like, I'm not perfect. I, I see where I have my deficits around food and nutrition. And so far be it from me to proselytize and tell these people and lecture these people when I am imperfect. I, I, like a lot of trainers, I don't want to say lie but they have the luxury of being able to, to really have rigid constraints around food. And fortunately, I did that. I suffered from it early in my training career. These like really orthorexic tendencies where I never, like I said, I, oh, I literally ate a meal plan out of muscle and fitness, freaking tilapia, broccoli, and brown rice. And I hated my life and I was miserable. And when I started eating other shit, my body composition stayed really good. My training got better and I had more freedom. And so I want to make sure other people can can get to a place similar to that too. And that you do you only do that by uh being honest and telling them that hey, you're you're allowed to have a little fun here and there. You just got to be reasonable. I love that. And I think that's really important. You mentioned the kind of like the food girl side of things. Is that taught to people or do you think that's learned skill? The food did you say food skill? Food or guilt. Foods, food food guilt. guilt. Gosh. Okay, definitely definitely sociological um, and absolutely more prevalent in women. I, I think that there are a lot of women who have been communicated not to eat certain things from their mothers, from their sisters, from other matriarchal people in their family. I train probably 70% of my clients are women and they will regularly use terms like that is fattening or I should not eat that. Or I'm just going to eat a salad or I'm just going to eat light. And I would say that those are almost assuredly uh, ingrained from 
somebody else. Because like a lot of times you'll hear the phrase intuitive eating thrown around. Like to me, intuitive eating is eating what I want when I feel like it. And if you put, if I ate intuitively in this environment, I'd be 400 pounds because I intuitively want pizza and Panda Express and Chick-fil-A every fucking day. But I know not to do that. So I think what you see, especially with women, is they are taught and it is ingrained into them, like from a very early age, like, oh, don't eat that. Oh my gosh, you're eating that? You're going to eat all that? Are you really going to eat all that? That has carbs. That has sugar. That's fattening. Those are phrases that you would only say and utter if somebody said them to you. So I'm, I'm very certain that a lot of that food guilt is ingrained from a very early age because uh, societally, at least here in America, you know, women, women uh, until very recently, like there, there was a pretty definitive look like this is, this is what you should be looking like. This is what you should be eating. This is how you should be behaving. This is your role. You know, we had these very tight, rigid constraints and those get passed down uh, very easily and very rapidly. Like I see it, I see it even within my own family, you know, so I would definitely say food guilt is, is oftentimes taught from parents, loved ones, and definitely younger women are absorbing a lot of that from social media too. And and obviously men as well. I just work more with women and I, I do see it the guilt tends to be a lot more intense with women. And that's not to say that men can't deal with food guilt either. I know plenty of men who struggle. I just think it's more prevalent and aggressive, a rampant amongst women. It's a super answer. And the next question of the lead on to that, can it be unlearned? I do think it can be unlearned, but again, I'm a personal trainer. I'm not a psychologist. So one of the ways I think it can be unlearned is through counseling or through some type of psychological intervention, having a therapist, having a coach, having a friend, having somebody you can talk to who can reasonably tell you like, you know, you're not a bad person because you deviated from your diet, right? Like, um, and in the same way that it is learned through repetitious communication of don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. I believe it can be unlearned through a proper dialogue and being a little bit more mindful of, okay, I am going to have this today because it makes sense in this context. And when I show up at the gym tomorrow, I'm going to train really hard and my weight's going to be about the same. And that's okay. Like, I really think it has to be unlearned slowly and it probably requires some introspection and it probably would require that person to unpack where that guilt came from. I'm not qualified to help people do that. Uh, at least, at least not in any meaningful way, especially if that food guilt creates disordered eating which it often does, but I truly believe it can be unlearned, but it requires working a little bit on what's in between your ears. And that doesn't mean that you have to go to a therapist to lose food guilt. But for a lot of people, that is buried deeply to a point where, okay, you're going to have to unpack some of that because that's not healthy in the long term. Yeah. It's so often it's kind of linked to either like acceptance from others societal acceptance or validation from others and looking for mm-hmm. that side of things and are you looking from from parents or grandparents or friends or whatever maybe it's it, it's so deep rooted it, it's yeah i think people just need to be careful with the language around kind of food and yeah it's just i think i think things are changing i had kind of the you mentioned intuitive eating there i had id shreesh the kind of like the co-inventor and co-author of of intuitive eating and her definition is a little bit different to yours but it's it like what is the debt? What is the uh, it's not definition. far off? It's yeah. not far off. 
um it's not far off what you said i think it's a little bit more i think yours is a little bit more blunt if you know what i mean yeah i mean the only gripe i have about it really is like okay I, i'm so sick of fitness professionals who have a hyper nuanced extremely well-versed understanding of nutrition uh, the physiology of nutrition and what's in what being like, just eat intuitively. It's like, well, no shit, dude. You fucking know everything that's in, ev you know, the macros in every piece of bread and every cup of rice and every ounce of every protein. So are you really eating intuitively or are you fucking informed as fuck? You are informed. You are very informed. You are an informed eater, an intuitive way of eating. Like we are animals. Human beings are 200,000 year old evolved ape hurtling through space on this tiny ass rock. And intuitively we want to to overconsume everything because for 198,000 years of our existence as a species, any calories was good calories. And that reptilian portion of your brain just has not outpaced your, it, it, your or the logical resources in your brain have not outpaced the reptilian drive to consume shit that tastes good. So I've always been a little dubious of that intuitive eating prescription because I've I've often I often hear it parroted by people who have an extremely extremely robust understanding of nutrition and their version of what is intuitive is highly informed whereas somebody who knows nothing about nutrition simply eating what feels right or or taking signals from their body it's like whoo uh there are a lot of signals coming in from everywhere and it's never going to be fruit and chicken breast it's always going to be hyper palatable highly textured calorie rich foods and so I'm, I'm probably like really jaded about it as somebody who mostly eats intuitively but again i'm able to maintain a good body composition because of my activity and because i intuitively know well i need to get 160 to 180 grams of protein a day because of a variety of different reasons that's not intuition that's education that's informed. That's, that's it's a very, very valid point. Um, and I would say the other side of things is most people don't know what fullness or hunger is. Most people aren't aware of what they actually are. Like a hunger no level. Fullness level for you could be completely like fullness level to me is Christmas dinner. Like that's that's stuffed, if you know what I mean. And then yeah. hunger is I'm gonna eat, I'm gonna eat the wall. So I've ever seen yeah. that, that meme when the Labrador is looking at the wall, like could I have carbs? I'm going to eat out the wall. Totally. That's, that's, that's hunger to me, but that's not the same for like hunger to someone in a poorer country is going to be completely different. Fullness. Totally. So I mean, hunger to me is just boredom. I'm bored. <laughs> well, time to eat. You know, like it really does vary. And I think like the, the one thing I love about that movement is there is a large focus on introspection and paying attention to these signals and being mindful of these signals and taking inventory. That's wonderful. And that's lovely. I think that that's highly effective. I just think that you need to layer in a little education and nuance there. It's like, okay, I am feeling real hunger. I'm going to choose to eat. Okay, we'll choose to eat some protein and fiber because it's better for you than just eating something that's purely refined carbohydrate and, you know, fat. Get get some protein in there, maybe some fiber. Intuitive with a little bit of information around some of the good stuff to throw into whatever you're going to eat. Wonderful. 
I don't know. I, 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 I think you've hit the nail on the head on there in relation to it. The last question I'm going, I just, I've sent over questions. I've stuck to zero of them. Uh, it's the, okay. I, the questions you sent over, I didn't even read. So it's all good. I won't take offense. It's all good. <laughs> uh, there was, a, there was one post that you put on, I think it was like in June at some time, it was like the fastest, fastest way to see results. And I think this, I think this is going to latch on. I think people will latch on to this. The fact that this is like, this will hone in as if people just, skip the whole episode that we've just spoken about just to go for this part so what are the fastest ways to see results yeah so I would say that, that in money in relationships in fitness people want things as fast and as rapidly as possible and they will choose get rich quick schemes extremely volatile relationship behaviors and entirely unsustainable fitness routines and nutrition you know, structures that lead them to making very accelerated progress in an extremely short term and then burning out and then ending up back where they started. And then they repeat and they do this cycle for years and years and years. And most people who want to build wealth are stuck in the cycle of getting rich quick and never getting anywhere. Most people who want to get fit are stuck in the cycle of trying to get it done fast and never getting anywhere. And the Failure, start over, failure, start over, failure, start over approach usually leads to weeks, months, years, decades of stagnation. The fastest way to make progress is to find something very effective, very boring, most likely, but very, very much sustainable that is hopefully evidence-based. And there is a large enough body of evidence, both anecdotal and scientific, to support using this. So for example, Investing in index funds, $1,200 a month for 40 years will guarantee you're going to be a millionaire probably by 40 to 60, unless somehow the United States economy and stock market and the 500 best companies in the world get flushed down the toilet. Or you can buy every fucking crypto shit coin that comes out and try to ride the rocket. Up to you. Same thing with fitness. You can find any exercise modality that you enjoy and you will show up and do I don't give a hell I don't give a rat's ass if it's zumba or jazzercise all movements better than none you can be mindful of your eating and informed of your eating while monitoring other lifestyle things like sleep or you can just keep jumping back and forth into crazy ass shit this boot camp that class this workout routine this fad diet that fad diet and I find that it's better to just stick to what's tried and true diligently, almost militantly for a couple of years and you'll get there. Like I tell people like, oh, you want to lose a hundred pounds. If I told you in two years, you could lose a hundred pounds. Would you be, would you take it? And they say, yeah. And then like, then why the fuck aren't you cool with losing two pounds a week? You could lose two pounds a week and be done in one year. They're like, oh, oh, oh. And it's like people really suck at, at, Kind of zooming in and out of short-term and long-term thinking. They do short-term thinking when it's convenient. They do long-term thinking when it's convenient. But when it comes to getting what they want, long-term thinking is almost never convenient. So if you just think long-term and stick with what works, like you'll a hundred almost almost assuredly get there faster, more safely, and have a substantially better opportunity to hold on to whatever you've gained or created than you will if you take more reckless. Um, less proven, high, uh, more volatile outcome approaches. 
Yeah, and I've and I've like I think fad diets come to mind. I had someone I had Scott Bapti on a guy over based over in Scotland, and he calls a fad diet a food avoidance diet. So like yes, that's perfect. And by by actually looking for that short, quick fix all the time, you're actually making your journey longer. It's totally. ironic. And like I, when you start talking about that crypto and all that kind of stuff, I, the, the compound effect came into my head straight away. It's like I'll offer you, I'll have to offer Danny one million quid right now, one million dollars yeah. right now. Or I can ten is a ten cent compounded over every for thirty days. And oh which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which one would you prefer? If you would wait thirty days, you'd have six point two million. So it's kind of like we want these quick fixes, but we're not prepared to put the work in. But ironically, we're actually making it more difficult to ourselves. Like more often than not, I had John Goodman on, and he was saying like fitness is boring. Like most things, like deadlifts, benches, squats, whatever it may be. They are boring, but they are the basics. They are the foundations of what's going to get you to where you go. I wish I had probably concentrated more often on my compounds at the beginning to get me to a further place than I am now. Same. Same, for sure. And as a lad, as anyone, I think I saw an interview with someone in the gym yesterday and they were kind of like the exact same thing. And they were were a woman in their 50s, I think it was. They're like, I wish I did that. And too too many people are doing all this accessory work because they want. And we only know what we know because we failed and we've yeah, seen exactly. the, and, and we're capable of going, well, if I could go back and, and do it again, I would do this. And and that's, that's what we want to communicate is like, Hey, you, you want to learn from my mistakes and the mistakes that I've seen, or do you want to make the same mistakes? Cause trust me, you know, you can kind of cut in line here. I've been in line. I tell people all the time I've been in line for 10 years trying to get into this fucking place. And I kept getting kicked to the back of the line all the time when I first started, but I'm like almost about to get in. I'm right up at the front. Like I I love my fitness routine. I love my relationship with food. I love my career. I love my girlfriend. I I have uh, a really holistic, um, nuanced, appropriate relationship with my health and fitness as a personal trainer, which is hard. A lot of times it's easy to get neurotic and I learned by fucking up. So you want to cut with me and come right to the front of the line? Or do you want to go to the back of the line and, you know, make all the same mistakes? Because I know like a lot about what not to do, probably just as much about what not to do as what I know to do. And if you just take my advice on not doing these destructive, repetitious, ineffective behaviors, shit, you'll be right up at the front of the line with me. You'll be right about to get into whatever the hell you're after. I love that. Uh, I love that. And it's a great way to kind of wrap up because uh, I know you are a busy, busy man. Danny, where can people find out about yourself? Where can people find out about the podcast? And where can people find out about social media for you? Sure. Yeah. So Instagram, Danny Matranga, uh, TikTok, I think is the same thing. YouTube, I think is the same thing. The podcast is Dynamic Dialogue with Danny Matranga. So if you just type that in, on Instagram or Google or YouTube or wherever, you'll probably find me. Um, and yeah, if for any reason on earth you'd want to continue to listen to me talk after hearing what I just like, after just listening to me talk for like 50 minutes, the podcast you'd probably like a lot. No, it's awesome. And Danny's had some great guests. I think you've had, you had Lyle McDonald on recently enough, I think it was. Or- I, lo- I love Lyle, man. I know that he can be hit and miss for people. And, you know, I, I try not to. I try not to take too much stock into what what people, the intellectuals in our space, there's so much competition. There's so much 
uh, intellectual dick measuring that goes on. Like I've talked to all of these people that, that debate each other often and they're all awesome. And Lyle's awesome. And every guest I've had is awesome. But when you get to that highest pinnacle of, you know, really living in the theoretical, there's a lot of debates. There's a lot of back and forth, but there's so many cool guest episodes. There's something for everybody. That's awesome. Awesome. Danny, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Dude. Hell yeah. Thanks for having me. Come back anytime. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with the amazing Danny Matranga. It's a really, really helpful and really, really insightful interview and episode in relation to the amount of content, the amount of useful information that it kind of talks about from a coach's perspective, but also talks about kind of like breaking down things so that everyone can understand. And that's a unique ability that Danny has. So I would highly recommend to share it highly recommend to kind of share it amongst your friends review it whatever it may be please do share the podcast please do leave a review up on itunes or whatever it may be the more people that kind of can come across the kind of like the decent wholesome information that's an evidence-based information the more people can get away from the silly things that they do with the likes of dieting and stuff like that so i would really really encourage you and really hope that you will share it and pass it on to people as well so hope you guys enjoyed the episode with the amazing danny matranga